One of the things that I think would be really important in the, in the future is to predict and prevent patients from experiencing critical illness or, or, or deterioration in their conditions. Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical, and that was a short clip from our interview with Dr. Robert Stevens. We caught up with him at the Society of Critical Care Medicine, where he was chairing uh, many of the discussions around the use of artificial intelligence in the world of critical care. And we decided to catch up with him to get his insights in terms of the world of medicine as it relates to precision medicine, predictive health, and how artificial intelligence fits into there. Now, Dr. Stevens is a fellowship-trained and board-certified physician in critical care medicine, neurocritical care, and anesthesiology. Currently, he is the Director for Laboratory of Computational Intensive Care Medicine and the Associate Director for the Precision Medicine Center of Excellence at the Johns Hopkins University. He also holds joint appointments in neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology at Johns Hopkins. Now, Dr. Stevens' vision is to deploy precision medicine for the benefit of critically ill patients. His research aims to discover and validate patient-specific biological signatures associated with things like trauma, surgery, and acute conditions such as stroke, cardiac arrest, sepsis, and acute kidney injury. Now, to achieve this, he engages with an interdisciplinary group of basic and systems neuroscientists, biomedical and computer engineers, biostatisticians, data scientists, and neuroradiologists. Now, one reason I really wanted to talk to Dr. Stevens is that, as you can tell, he has a variety of connections and involvement with very high-level research projects that will essentially affect the practice of medicine in many ways. To name some of these projects, uh, one of them is that he's the principal investigator for the Neuroimaging for Coma Emergence and Recovery Project, which examines MRI features of the brain connectum to enhance classification and prediction in patients recovering from severe brain injury. And some other projects in Dr. Stevens' groups uh, analyze features captured through neurophysiologic monitoring, uh, structural and functional MRI of the brain, serum biomarkers, wearable sensors, and all of which have the goal of enhancing classification and prediction in vulnerable acute ill patients. And in the lab, his group studies molecular and cellular determinants of injury and recovery in experimental models of traumatic brain injury, stroke, and sepsis with a special emphasis on neuroimmunological responses and cellular regeneration. So we were really excited to get sit down and talk to him. I know you'll enjoy this episode, a lot of value, a lot of insights on the future of medicine as it pertains to prediction and precision. So without further ado, here is the episode with Dr. Robert Stevens. All right. Hey everyone, this is Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical, and we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Robert Stevens, who I got the pleasure of meeting at SCCM, who's a fantastic background. He's currently at Johns Hopkins University, and I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to him. You know, Dr. Stevens, thanks for joining us. Can you give us a little bit of your background and your current role at Hopkins? Hi, how are you? Um, so, yeah, my name is Robert Stevens. I'm a, an associate professor um, in the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. 
I have also joint appointments in uh, neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology. Um, I'm the uh, co-director of the um, Precision Medicine Center of Excellence uh, for Neurocritical Care, and uh, I also have a very robust uh, research program, which is primarily dedicated to um, optimizing the care and outcomes of patients admitted to the ICU using computational and quantitative methods. Fantastic. Now, Dr. Stevens, you know, one, one question I, I have to ask, you know, a lot of, we have a lot of people who are, who are listening who are uh, pre-med and medical student, of course, residents. So just out of curiosity, like what, what got you into medicine? Why did you decide to go into medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. I started off, you know, um, my studies with a an interest in, in actually topics that are quite remote from, from science and medicine. I was very interested in philosophy, um, political science, literature. Um, but uh, little by little, I, you know, I came to um, have a, a sort of deeper understanding of uh, what is involved in being a doctor and uh, the sort of scientific approach to uh, evaluating and treating human uh, health and human disease. And this, this occurred over several years, multiple discussions with friends and family. And finally, uh, I decided that, you know, this was probably the right thing for me, so I entered medical school. Um, and uh, I must say that I, it's been a great, um, a great experience, a great adventure. I have, do not regret it in any way. Fantastic. And, and, you know, after medical school, um, what, what did you decide to go to do your residency and training and why? Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I grew up in uh, Switzerland and um, having uh, completed my medical uh, training, uh, medical school, I um, subsequently went into um, residency training. So I did, um, you know, uh, different, uh, I went into different areas, internal medicine, surgery. Um, and then I became rapidly fascinated with intensive care medicine uh, through my rotations. And so uh, that's when I decided to uh, do an uh, anesthesiology residency. Um, and uh, during that residency, I had the opportunity to work for um, several, um, many months in the intensive care units. Um, and so then I followed up with um, fellowships. So I did um, actually, two, three, three different fellowships in intensive care, neurocritical care, um, and then simultaneously with all this, I uh, one of the reasons you know why I entered medicine and why I remain in medicine is because of the science, because of the research, and so throughout my uh, my career as a student, as a as a resident, as a fellow, and and now as a professor, I, I've been very passionate about trying to. Um, advance the, the science um, in, in this field. And, um, and so this, this has been a major you know, preoccupation of mine is how can we gain uh, greater knowledge on, um, on health and disease using you know, advanced methods. Yeah, and speaking of which, you know, so you and I, we first met uh, a couple weeks ago in Orlando at the Society for Critical Care Medicine, and you were leading a lot of these sessions and panels on artificial intelligence and machine learning, which uh, really I thought was was very well done. Um, just because even though we talk a lot about it in medicine, I don't think there's a lot of physicians who number one have a good understanding and command of what AI and medicine looks like, and more importantly, they don't necessarily do a great job of translating that to their peers. But you know, your sessions were really fantastic. So when it comes to like AI as it applies to precision medicine, like what are some things that you're genu- that you're genuinely excited about and why? Yeah, so I think um, 
the you know you bring up several interesting um, terms. So first of all, precision medicine. Um, so this is something that I, I've been personally invested in for several years. I think that um, we we are at a unique time in our history when um, we have the ability to acquire um, extremely detailed, uh, high resolution, high frequency information uh, on uh, on um, human health, right? And so this can include obviously genomics, imaging, data from the electronic health records. Um, and so we, we are currently, you know, we, we have an unprecedented amount of data that is accessible um, and that can be leveraged. And so simultaneously with that, we have um, techniques like artificial intelligence and in particular machine learning that allow us to effectively and efficiently um, analyze these, these complex data sets and, and extract knowledge that um, can be helpful to, um, you know, understanding health and understanding disease and how to treat them. So I think that the, the, um, the, the convergence that you talked about of precision medicine and artificial intelligence is a very, very powerful one. Um, I think the, uh, the goal, of course, uh, for, of precision medicine is to develop um, a individualized paradigm of human health, meaning that each individual, we know that every single human being is unique. Um, we also need to understand how the health trajectories of each individual is absolutely unique in biological terms, and I think we now have the capabilities to do that. And then we need to develop um, interventions to promote health and to, um, you know, to solve disease using this highly individualized approach, right? So I think medicine is evolving rapidly. And one of the keys to that uh, evolution or maybe revolution is, is AI because it allows us to process huge amounts of data very, very fast, very effectively in ways that were just not imaginable even, you know, just five or ten years ago. No, absolutely. And, you know, for the general audience that's listening, you know, tell us a little bit more, like what – what exactly is precision medicine? Is, is medicine not precise to, you know, today or in the past? And, and if not, what does it mean to, to come closer to having precision medicine? Yeah, so we, we'd like to I think many people would like to think that uh, the medicine or the, the health care that they're receiving is precise. But the truth is that it, in many cases, um, you know, it's um, we, we base our, um, you know, our knowledge and our practice of medicine not on um, the what we are seeing in terms of individual characteristics of a patient, but more on um, uh, inferences that we've made on the basis of, you know, analyzing groups and large populations, right? So what this means is let's take a condition like, you know, that is very common, prevalent, let's say hypertension, high blood pressure. Um, you know, it's estimated that, you know, about anywhere between 40 and 60% of adults in the United States um, will uh, develop hypertension in their lifetime. So this is very, very common. Um, and, uh, and yet we, we are beginning to understand that uh, the causes of hypertension are not single, they're not unique. There are many, many different potential changes or abnormalities that can occur that can lead to hypertension. And yet the way that we treat hypertension is what you would say like a sort of one-size-fits-all um, we commonly will prescribe the same medication to very, very heterogeneous groups of individuals who have hypertension, um, not, not fully appreciating that some of those individuals may benefit from the treatment, others may not. Some, 
um, may actually be harmed, right? So what, what, when we talk about precision medicine, we're saying, why don't we leverage the more detailed biological um, knowledge that we can uh, that we can gain on, on individual patients to develop more personalized or more precise therapies? Why don't we, you know, you know, like why don't we leverage genomics, for example, to identify the specific abnormalities that are leading to hypertension, and then target those abnormalities in the treatments that we propose? Um, this is what precision medicine is all about. It's essentially trying to tailor the therapies so that we, you know, can deliver the right treatments to the right patient at the right time. Um, and the, the, the reality is that uh, the way that we practice medicine today is, you know, it's a long way from that, that approach. Got it. Now, you know, one thing you mentioned uh, uh, that I thought is incredibly important is this advent of, of having all this data, right? And I think the exciting thing in medicine in the last 20 years is, you know, going, you know, a lot of industries, including medicine, have have started to go online, and better ways of capturing and providing data have have been seen. But the other problem with that is that it's kind of like a, a couple hundred years ago when the microscope was used, and we looked into a water droplet and discovered hundreds of thousands and millions of organisms. I feel like it's the same way now with medicine and data, where it's great that we have this data, but now we're 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 getting an onslaught of all this information. And so doctors and nurses seem to be very overwhelmed with all the data and what to do with it. Um, so do you feel that that's where, you know, at least machine learning can help? And, and if so, where, where do we start in medicine? Where's, where's the best applications? Yeah, so I, I think you, you bring up uh, several important points. So I think at the, the, um, at the level of, you know, where most doctors and nurses practice, I think many doctors and nurses feel overwhelmed because they, there's so much information that they have to, uh, that they have to, you know, um, process and document uh, and read, you know, to effectively uh, deliver the care that they're supposed to be that's been expected from them. Um, but at, at, a, at another level, um, it is true that uh, the, these very large data sets that are uh, becoming available. So, for example, genomics or, you know, different uh, multi-omics, you know, transcriptomics, metabolomics, um, knowledge of the, or information on the microbiome, and then also very detailed quantitative, you know, um, imaging data and quantitative, you know, physiologic data. These are things that are beyond the capacity of a single human uh, brain to effectively process and, and, and analyze. So, we do need, um, you know, advanced statistical and uh, machine learning methods to help us with that. But I would say also that, um, you know, uh, machine learning is is useless in the absence of um, a strong biological sort of um, foundations and hypotheses. So I think the the, the only way that this the, this field can advance is, you know, the, the combination of three things. One is obviously uh, the uh, uh, availability of high-resolution, high-quality data on human health. That's one thing. The second is, of course, the implementation of um, advanced statistical and machine learning uh, modeling approaches. But I think the third piece of this that is really the key to success is, you know, um, to, to have some strong biological hypotheses, uh, you know, that, that will drive the, the cycle of discovery. So, uh, you, you can't just expect it's not it's not as if you can magically put big data and machine learning together and then some solutions are going to emerge. You need to have the input of um, you know uh, domain experts, people who are 
have knowledge, you know, deep uh, and broad knowledge of human biology, of human medicine, to uh, be able to really guide the process, move it forward. So it's really those th- those three things that are essential in my view. I, I absolutely agree, and and you know that's the first time I've heard it uh, articulated that effectively, because I think that one of the issues, in my opinion, that I see. And I'm here in, you know, I'm, I'm based out in Silicon Valley, is that the tech world looks at the medical world and says, oh, you know, if you have all this data in the EMR, we can plug in and we can just consolidate all this data and then we're going to change medicine. But the problem with that is that you, you have to have some strong hypotheses. And I really love that, that you put it that way. Strong hypotheses rooted in, in foundational physiology, biology that'll help say, okay, if we have the data on this and then we have you know some ML and AI capabilities, where is it going to be most effective and where is it going to make sense? Because if not, then you can start being led down a complete rabbit hole. And the one the one that I like to point out is Google, um, you know, so my my company we're focused on on fluid management and specifically on urine output uh, for acute kidney injury. And Google about a year ago published a paper on predicting acute kidney injury within 48 hours. And so we were, we were all very intrigued. We are like, oh, that's great to see this. Let's see what they have. And what they did was they took an algorithm and plugged into the EMR and basis based off of creatinine, which is unfortunately a lagging indicator. So you don't really predict AKI based on that, right? And so I think it, you're right in that the hypotheses have to be strong and rooted in, in physiology. Right, right now in medicine, what are some top areas that you think have strong hypotheses uh, to use AI and data to change practice? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think there, there are, you know, domain experts in many different uh, fields of medicine. Um, and, um, you know, certainly in oncology, for example, um, you know, you can see how this field has been transformed, you know, for just in the past 20, 30 years. I mean, the oncology was largely based on sort of clinical and, um, you know, histological, gross pathological uh, criteria 20, 30 years ago. And now it's largely driven by our understanding of the genetic changes that are either responsible for or result from uh, the cancer, cancerous transformation of tissues. Um, and, and these genetic changes are uh, in many ways driving the kinds of therapies that we implement for, for cancer patients. So this is a, you know, I think I would say that if you wanted to talk about success stories for personalized or precision medicine, oncology is one of them. And certainly an, a story that's still unfolding, but I think we can learn a lot from what's being done in the field of cancer. Uh, but my field, which is intensive care medicine, I think is also on the cusp of, you know, a major revolution. I think we have um, you know, a lot of uh, domain experts, people who are um, studying intensive care from different angles who have very, um, you know, valuable, deep insights into why people develop conditions like sepsis or ARDS. Uh, and uh, we need those people to work closely with, you know, the data scientists um, to, uh, to effectively leverage, you know, the power of, of, um, of, of uh, big data sets in the intensive care. And so and here we're talking in the ICU of not just, you know, physiology, the sort of phys- physiological time series that is recorded on the monitors, but I think we need to go, uh, you know, many levels deeper. We need, you know, I think the, the sort of revolution in intensive care 
is going to be a combination of, you know, knowledge of physiology and also knowledge of biological changes that are the, uh, the basis for the physiological changes. So I think, uh, you know, so I think there, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done, but I think that, you know, I can see this almost every day in my uh, research group because I, I have a, I'm very fortunate to have a, a group of uh, people that are working with me. So this is, you know, a combination of clinicians as well as, um, you know, data scientists, engineers, computer scientists. And uh, we meet, you know, very, very, on a very regular basis. And it's a constant exchange, right? Because there are data scientists are really looking towards me and my clinician colleagues for insights on human disease and human physiology. And we're obviously looking towards them for, you know, to to develop the the most effective ways for modeling and for classification. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, I want to take a quick sidestep. You know, one thing I wanted to mention, and it it was very nice that it happened this week since we're jumping on the, on the phone with you, but I wanted to, you know, say to you and your team, congratulations. I understand um, that the NCCU team or the, I guess the neurocritical care unit uh, and the, the, and the area of precision medicine was designated as a, uh, a center of excellence at Johns Hopkins. Is that correct? Yeah. So the Johns Hopkins, um, you know, has developed a, uh, Precision medicine, individualized medicine uh, has really uh, understood that this is a strategic priority. And so uh, the School of Medicine and the Dean, uh, Dean Rothman, have decided that they would um, fund periodically um, centers dedicated to excellence in a specific domain. Um, and so uh, over the past you know, few years, we've had you know, uh, precision medicine centers, for, for example, for um, uh, prostate cancer, I think pancreatic cancer, uh, and um, it's a competitive process. So uh, every year there's a solicitation and different teams can compete. Uh, so we were extremely uh, fortunate to be selected this year. Um, and we are uh, in the early stage of putting uh, putting together a, a center of excellence that is devoted specifically to um, optimizing the care and outcomes of patients admitted to the neurocritical care unit. Um, we have several, you know, short-term objectives, but the longer-term vision really is to to do what I was talking about earlier, which is to, uh, you know, design the ICU or the neuro ICU of the future, where um, there will be this kind of seamless interaction between the, the sort of domain experts, the intensivists, the the multiple data streams, and of course the um, uh, you know different tools such as machine learning uh, that will help us to. Uh, really have a deeper understanding of why our patients are becoming so ill and how we can treat them. Yeah, so so you know the neuro the neuro ICU of the future. I think that's really interesting. And what I wanted to know is what does that what does that look like to you? One of the things that I think would be really um, important in the in the future is to um, is, is to be able to predict and prevent uh, patients from. Um, experiencing uh, critical illness or, or, or deterioration in their conditions. And so um, I think that uh, we're, we're close to being able to do that. I think what we need are um, highly, um, highly precise and accurate models that can tell us uh, if a patient is about to um, experience a deterioration like respiratory failure, sepsis, um, uh, you know, uh, delirium, uh, coma, stroke, a heart attack, uh, pulmonary embolism. These are all events that are potentially catastrophic, but that can be predicted if we have the, uh, the um, available data and the appropriate models. So I think the, I'm hoping that the ICUs of the future 
will, first of all, I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to be a lot smaller because we'll be so good at predicting and preventing patients from developing critical illness so that we don't have to admit them to the ICU anyway. That's one thing. And then I think also we'll be very good. Once the patients arrive in the ICU, we'll be extremely good at uh, turning them around and, and um, you know, uh, and effectively treating them much more effectively than we do so now. Um, because we'll have a much uh, sounder understanding of their biological derangements. So I'm, I'm thinking of an ICU of the future that will be, um, you know, the, the real ICU, like the ones that we talk about or that we see today, will be much smaller, um, and uh, the, the patients will stay with us much for lesser durations of time. So that's one thing. The other thing, uh, the other way of conceiving it, though, is to think of it sort of paradoxically as much larger, and I'll explain what I mean. What I mean is that, um, we absolutely need to develop methods to implement the kind of monitoring that we have in the ICU to expand that to include the whole hospital. Why do I say that? I say that because we know, um, you know, that any if you take any sort of given hospital or health system, there are the vast majority of people, usually 80, 90% of them, are not in an intensive care unit. They're not in a monitored setting. And these are patients who usually are quite sick. That's why they're in the hospital. And they're at risk for deterioration. And so what we need, and this is where the um, input from our, my engineering colleagues and, and also people who are not my colleagues who are engineers is, is really valuable. We need to develop sensing and monitoring technologies and predictive algorithms that can help us detect when a patient um, in the hospital but not in the ICU is likely to deteriorate in the next few hours or the next few days. Uh, and so what I'm saying is kind of, it sounds maybe contradictory, but it's not. What I'm saying is that we, I think the future will look like this. We'll have the entire hospital will be kind of like an ICU because everybody will have wearable sensors on them that'll tell us, um, you know, hopefully with high accuracy if they're likely to deteriorate and will give us a window of opportunity to treat them and prevent deterioration from happening. So that's one thing. And then on the other hand, I think that the real ICU for the patients who've truly sort of fallen off the cliff those will be probably smaller because we'll be so good at preventing those deteriorations. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of where I see things going. No, it completely does. And and it's interesting you you put it that way. I, I totally agree. You know, again, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I guess, hedge against what I know really well, which is, you know, what we're doing here at Petrero, focusing as, as a precision fluid management company. And urine output and, and things like interabdominal pressure are important, but it's like a piece of the puzzle. But I know the nephrology intensivists who listen to our broadcast will appreciate this. But just a few months ago, they did a uh, they did a study in the UK where uh, they compared uh, creatinine to uh, hourly urine output, and when they measured hourly urine output very intensively um, and and compared it to the staging of acute kidney injury, they found that the staging was worse and the incidence of acute kidney, kidney injury went up by like thirty or forty percent. And the conclusion was that there needs to be better ways to measure fluids such as urine output. And I think it goes back to uh, on a very high level what you just pointed out, which is that the whole hospital is going to be kind of like an intensive care unit in the sense that you'll have wearables and hardware that will help capture and track data continuously, accurately, and for, in a streaming fashion. And when you do that, that's going to illuminate completely new paradigms in medicine on how we should uh, not only detect, but also predict illnesses and diseases. And then, of course, that'll help with different uh, and earlier interventions. So I comp that completely makes sense. Yeah, so I think that's that's the vision for the future. And I think uh, we're sort of heading there. I can tell you that 
I have a, a separate group of engineers who are right now developing a multi-modality sensor, like a little band-aid that you can put on the chest. And, you know, uh, it provides like six different physiological variables. So, you know, and we're, 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 doing some, we're doing some testing right now on this. But, there, you know, this is, we're not the only ones who are doing this kind of thing. But it's certainly, I think, um, a paradigm that we're going to see a whole lot of. Um, and uh, it's going to be really important. I think it's, uh, it's going to open up this window of, of what I would call the preventability of critical illness. I mean, in a perfect world, intensive care, you know, units would not exist because we've become so adept at, uh, you know, early identification and prevention. Well, and, you know, we're getting, you know, we want to be mindful of your time. So we're getting, getting close to the top of the hour, but a couple other questions I had. So I'm, I'm going to ask, and if you can't say, you can say no, but I know that our, our audience will, will, will be mad at me if I don't ask this. That sensor that you're currently uh, working on, what, what are the six, six different modalities and, and, and uh, uh, biomarkers you're trying to pick up, if you can share? Yeah, I think it might be a little bit early to, to talk about that, but I certainly I'll be happy to provide an update once, once it's more developed. All right, so you're on you're on the hook for that. So hopefully, in about six months or a year, when when things develop, we're going to have you back on because we would we would love to hear more about that. Um, you know, one thing that I think is interesting in the world of uh, precision medicine, especially as it comes to to data, is using vital signs that normally we've kind of glanced over and not taken so seriously, just because there hasn't been better way to pick them up. But to use them in a new way, you know, um, whether it's uh, respiration, urine output, uh, pulse, w- would you agree? And if so, what are some vital signs you think will be really important in terms of using uh, machine learning on? Yeah, so with all of those um, signals, um, you know, I think it's important to differentiate between the sort of episodic measurements that um, people have relied on until, you know, until now, basically, and continue to rely on, which is, you know, the, the nurse will go out and get vital signs once every four hours, once every six hours, and then we'll, you know, we'll sort of look at those trends. I think the, the paradigm shift that we're talking about is continuous time series, where which obviously are available already now in, in, in the intensive care unit, but which we're hoping will be available more generally throughout the hospital through the use of wearable sensing and monitoring technologies. Um, and the reason I think this is important, this evolution, is because we know, uh, I can tell you that our modeling has shown very clearly that um, the time series really are signatures of the underlying physiology in a way that the episodic measurements are not. Uh, so when you're able to sample, for example, the respiratory rate or the, um, the, the heart rate variability or the um, uh, you know, changes in urine output from on a sort of minute-to-minute or even hour-to-hour basis, it's a huge difference in terms of identifying physiological signatures that could be associated with, you know, imminent or impending um, deterioration. Um, so I, I think the, the sort of temporal component, understanding how uh, that, that evolves is really uh, crucial. Another set of parameters that we didn't talk about, but which I, I personally think are really important, are the, the sort of physiological, uh, neurophysiological changes. So, for example, EEG. Um, I can tell you that in my industry that we do a lot of uh, continuous EEG monitoring, um, and that's just an incredibly rich uh, signal um, and the possibilities in terms of um, deriving uh, meaningful quantitative features from the uh, from the EEG from the continuous EEG 
are, are really huge. Uh, we're just only beginning to leverage that right now. And a third area, which I think, uh, which we don't often think about either, for especially for the intensive care unit, is imaging. Um, and you know, my group has been working, for example, on quantitative approaches to CT scan and MRI. And it's very clear that um, you know the the way that we uh, currently use um, routine tests, like you know, head CT or brain MRI is really just kind of scratching the surface. There's a huge amount of information in those types of studies that we're not at all exploiting um, and that we can analyze, you know, using quantitative, sort of systematic quantitative approaches. Interesting. Now, you know, before we wrap up, and again, you know, we appreciate you spending some time out of your day to chat with us. You know, I do have some interesting, uh, we call them rapid-fire questions. Uh, we like to ask uh, all our healthcare leaders these questions, and you can take as long or as short of a time you'd, as you'd like to answer them. So, of course, if you answer the question fast, then I'll move on to the next one. But otherwise, you can take your time on it. So the first question, and actually it's, re- it's, it's good because it's something that you and I uh, were very much able to relate to. But both you and I were really into books. Uh, from my understanding, you, you get, like myself, you get in trouble with your spouse for ordering too many books on Amazon. So I'm glad that there's someone else out there like me. But you know, for all the uh, people who are listening, especially the uh, young leaders in medicine and healthcare, what's a book that you most often recommend or, or perhaps a book that you read recently that really influenced the way you're, you think today? Oh, um, that's a hard one because I, 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 do, I do read a lot. Um, I, you know, I'm very partial to, um, you know, uh, fiction and also philosophy. But in terms of like, you know, more sort of, uh, practical business oriented books. I, I, I like, uh, the, uh, the work of, um, Taleb, uh, Nassim Taleb, who, um, you know, he wrote the black swan or fooled by randomness. I think those are really, really very thought provoking books. So, yeah, that's a good one. I think he did also skin in the game too. Yeah. I didn't, I have not read that most recent one, but I, I think he's very, um, very smart, very thought provoking. Um, I also, um, you know, I'm very interested in the work of uh, like Daniel Goleman, you know, like on emotional intelligence. I like uh, the um, Daniel Kahneman, you know, work, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. I think those are really interesting books that I've really enjoyed quite a bit. Oh, yeah, those are fantastic recommendations. Yeah, so I completely agree. And I'll, I'll leave links in the, uh, in the show notes for our audience. Um, next question I have is that let's imagine or pretend and we're, we'll, we can wrap up on this last question. So I want you to imagine that everywhere in the United States, you're going to have a billboard that's going to stay up for one year. And every uh, medical peer of yours is going to see this billboard as they go into work. What message would you put on that billboard? Probably pay attention. I say pay attention because I think, you know, the reason I'm, it may sound very simplistic, but I, I think um, a lot of the, um, you know, we, we can gain so much by just paying very close attention to to our patients, to our behavior, to their behavior, to our interactions, to gaining insights on health and on disease. So I think, yeah, I think it, I would just say pay attention. Yeah, I I, I really I, I really like that answer, and and I completely agree. I think you know. Whether you're a physician or someone who works in the world of tech, I think the benefit of all this technology is that, yes, it does make things a little bit easier. It makes us more efficient. But more importantly, 
the hope is that when technology lifts uh, the burden of some of these manual tasks and things that we don't like to do, we have to go back to strengthening our own our own minds and being able to pay close attention to things. And I think that's that's a big part of the human spirit. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think you know, so some philosophers have opined on the on this subject, but. I, you know, you can make the case that if we if we were really good at paying attention, we could probably solve many of the problems that we see around us. So, I think that's the uh, you know we we're usually in so much of a rush, we're inundated by so much information that we fail to to appropriately pay attention. When I say pay attention, it's not just you know uh, I don't mean moving away from the technical world. I mean actually is being more insightful in the way that we appreciate what's going on around us uh, and trying to interpret it in ways that we hadn't been able to do in the past. No, completely. I, I completely agree. Well, Dr. Stevens, we really appreciate you spending some time and coming on. Uh, again, you're, you're on the hook with us, so hopefully uh, in, in about six to nine months or a year, we'll, we'll have you back on. We'd love to hear updates uh, from, your, from your research group and how, how things are going. But, you know, again, thank you for spending the time with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Perfect. Well, have a great day. And, and, and for everyone out there, we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, Please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.